Our scripture this morning comes from Exodus chapter 16. Give you guys a chance to to turn there. It's going to be right in the beginning. Exodus chapter 16. It's going to be verses 1 through 21. It's a story that you will have heard before, no doubt, but uh, we're going to talk about generosity today, and it kind of fits in with Mother's Day a little bit. That was not intentional, but it works out that way. But anyways, Exodus 16. Hopefully you've had a chance to turn there if you're at home and you're you want to read along. It says this, The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate the food we wanted, all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve the entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they're to prepare what they bring in and have it be twice as much as they gather on other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it is the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord. He has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in a cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have, the heart that I have heard the grumbling Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you'll be filled with bread, and you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening, quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? Because they didn't know what it was. Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. Take an omer for each person you have in your tent. The Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much and some little. And when they measured it by omer, he who gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little did not have too little. Each one gathered as much as he needed. Then Moses said, No one keep any of it till morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses, and they kept part of it until morning. But it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. I had the the privilege of growing up in a a pretty good home. Mom and dad were both there. Uh, My dad worked, and I never, uh, not only did I never need anything, most times I had uh, more than I needed. And when we talk about generosity like we will today, and on this Mother's Day, we're reminded that uh, if you have a, a good mom, a mom that's doing what they should be doing and uh, a good household, then they are abundantly generous to their kids. And they, the goal is to give them more than they ever had and give them more than they need to have them set up to succeed and to find happiness and that kind of stuff. And so I, pr- I grew up in a good home. I was well taken care of. I had definitely more than I needed, but I wasn't exposed to this place, to church at all, uh, until my cousin brought me to the church. I was maybe uh, eight years old, third grade, and there was a, a youth group on Wednesday nights affectionately called Knox Foxes. 
and uh, I was exposed to kind of the, the, the kids' programs through that, and we didn't have the addition to the building, so we were throwing footballs around parts of the church that we probably shouldn't have been, but we didn't have a gym yet or a place to really do it. So I was exposed to Knox Foxes, and through that, uh, the same people that were working with Knox Foxes were running children's church and Sunday school on Sunday mornings. So uh, I would pack up in the car and come to the church on Wednesdays for Knox Foxes, for the youth group for elementary school, and then I would uh, Sundays come in and have Sunday school before service, and then I would come into the service here in the sanctuary, and before the sermons we were dismissed to children's church and junior church. So I got exposed uh, that way. But there were a couple of adults that had a, a pretty big factor in my pre-teenage years, and we affectionately call them leaders here. So people who volunteer in our children's programs, and our teen programs, uh, we would call them leaders, uh, because that's what they are. They're not a chaperone. They're not a, a parent or a coach. They lead the kids both in life and in our, our programs. So uh, we use that term leaders because our, our, our leaders are involved in their lives. It's not, we're not here to supervise as the kids play games. We play games with the kids, right? We speak to the kids. We run small groups with the kids. And uh, I had a, a conversation with one of our leaders when I was in middle school, and she said that she noticed I hadn't been coming on Sundays, and she missed me. And I said, well, my cousin who lived right upstairs, we were in a double, but my cousin that brought me to church here had moved out to Pendleton, which is 35, 40 minutes away, not too far. But she wasn't come driving into church on Sunday mornings anymore, so I, I lost my ride. And I lived in Riverside, not too far away, but when you're 13 years old, you're not going to walk. I wouldn't have been able to like, get on my bike. That wasn't allowed. It was too far. And uh, that leader said, all right, well, I'll pick you up. Where do you live? And I didn't think much of it. I gave her my address, and she picked me up, and... Uh, she went on to do that for the next, like, six years of my life until I had a license and a car of my own, including letting me drive when I had my permit, which God bless her for that because I don't know what she was thinking to let a 16-year-old with, you know, five hours driving experience drive her car. But um, I learned throughout, like, you know, growing up and, and spending time with her, um, we'd go out to breakfast after church every Sunday. We'd go to the art museum. We'd spend a lot of quality time together after church, but I learned, like, as I grew up and got a little bit smarter, uh, that she lived a block from the church. And most times, even if the weather wasn't that great, she'd walk, because why get in the car and drive when it's, a, you know, an eighth of a mile to walk to the church? And never did that come up that, you know, she could have preferred and did usually walk to church, but instead would get in her car and drive ten minutes into Riverside for no reason other than to pick me up. And that was an awesome... Uh, it's, a, it's a form of generosity that doesn't make sense. Like, why would someone do that? What's in it for, for them? And likewise, uh, in middle school youth group, there was another leader who I'm still very, very close with to this day. And the first exposure to him was we were playing scatterball in Bethlehem Hall, which, as we said, we didn't have a gym yet, so we used parts of the church that we probably shouldn't have used to play sports. But uh, all I will say is there was a reason there were no pictures hanging downstairs because they would surely fall off the walls and get smashed every time. So we would play dodgeball, and scatterball was every person for themselves dodgeball. So there were no teams. There was no, like, you could work together with somebody. But I remember vividly that there was a ball on the ground that I laid out to try to scoop up. And right before I laid it out to get it, the leader bent over and picked it up and was holding it in their hand. And I now curl up into the fetal position under the shadow of this leader. Who I'm, you know, I'm in sixth grade, so I'm 12 years old, and this leader is a little older than that. And I am nervous that I could meet my end here. 
And all I can say is I think his goal was to pile drive me into the ground with the dodgeball because he wound up and gave a spike down on my body so hard. But I'll tell you what, that was awesome. And we ended up uh, going to the father-son weekend campouts together because he didn't have a son. And as cool as my dad was, he wasn't tent camping in February. It wasn't his thing. So we would spend all kinds of time together. Um, any wrestling event that came to Buffalo, when I was in middle school, the WWF was the coolest thing ever. Any wrestling event that came to Buffalo, he bought a ticket. He took me as if I was his own kid, never asked me or my parents for money, didn't realize these things when I was 13 years old, but picked me up. Anytime there was a pay-per-view, right, once a month, wrestling pay-per-views were on, on TV, and most times we would gather at someone's house for youth group, but a lot of times it was at his house, or when his wife and kids would travel for like a vacation because he had daughters, they would take like a girl's vacation. On a Friday night, he'd have me over and we'd watch B-list movies and burn popcorn and hang out together and, and just kind of drink way too much caffeinated pop. Um, and those kinds of things are a type of generosity that doesn't make sense because the world would look at that and be like, why would you do this stuff for people that aren't your family? Like, I'm not related to either one of these people by blood in any way, shape, or form, and they treated me oftentimes like their own kid or treated me like a nephew or a cousin or whatever. And uh, it's amazing because when you start to unravel, you know, kind of why they were doing that, you realize that it was their faith and their belief in God and that they wanted, what they wanted to show me and do for me was, re even if it wasn't intentional, intentional, reveal the generosity that God's kingdom has to offer. So if we look at our, our scripture, when we look at the, the famous story of the, the Israelites in the desert, um, the, they were freed for, from Egypt and they were wandering in the desert for a month. The, the scripture says it was the 15th day of the second month and they got out on the 15th day of what would be called the first month. So for a month, they've been wandering in the desert and after a month, what appears to have happened? They've run out of food. They start complaining to Aaron and Moses you've brought us out here to die because we're out of food. They're looking at their donkeys and their, their rucksacks and there's no MREs ready. There's no, they're, they're out. They had a month's worth of food, per se. And they start complaining to Moses and Aaron. They say some interesting things. Hey, we'd rather be slaves in Egypt because at least back there, there were pots of meat and all the bread we could eat. Right? So they, they list two things, pots of meat and all the bread we could eat. You've brought us out here to starve to death. You know what? Great job. We, we were, yeah, we were enslaved in Egypt, but at least we weren't starving to death. Now we're here. We're out in the desert. We've got no idea where we are. We have no idea where we're going, and we're out of food. And they complain to Moses and Aaron, or about, even about Moses and Aaron, kind of leading them to their death in the desert. But during this conundrum, God shows up with kind of an abnormal generosity because although Moses and Aaron continue to tell the people, look, you're grumbling against God, not us. God has brought us this far. But ultimately, they complain to Moses and Aaron, and God shows up to give the people food. Right In the midst of Moses and Aaron being under fire, God calls Moses and Aaron over and starts to talk to them. And think about that. How generous that God would speak to people at all. Like There is no reason at all for God to need to speak to us if he doesn't want to. Because we're sinners, he's not, he's perfect, we're not. Like, God would still be God if prayer didn't work, but for some reason, God allows us to pray and he listens to our prayers and he answers our prayers. And likewise, God shows up and tangibly 
speaks with Moses and Aaron and eventually to the Israelites. And he kind of gives them uh, a blessing, a, a, generosity, a generous gift that they don't even know what to do with, right? So he says, by morning you will have manna. Well, he calls it bread from heaven, right? God says bread from heaven will come down. The Israelites call it manna, which is essentially the translation of, uh, what is it? It's kind of like a murmur because, right? Well, when they saw it on the ground, and it's the scriptures say that they asked each other, what is it? Manna. Like, I don't know. I don't know. When we, when we don't use real words, I don't know. Right? It's kind of like a, what the heck is it? Because they're looking at the ground, and it's not loaves of bread. Like if you read into it, it says it's kind of on the ground, like when the dew would lift, it was on the ground like a frost. There's some people that say they even had to like sweep it up. And when they talk about omers, that was a measurement unit that could be a gallon, but in the Israelite, it's believed, in this case, it may have been more like a cup. But they were able to like scoop it up in a jar or scoop it up in a cup because it wasn't solid bread. Uh, it said that it would taste like honey. Uh, Ginsler said that, that it, it was believed that because it was from God, the manna would taste like whatever the person would eat. So for children, it would taste like milk. For adults, it would taste like honey. That's a, that's a guess. It's a prediction that's not scriptural like for sure, but there's a belief that this stuff was truly like a crazy gift from God. So just picture it. You wake up in the morning and the dew starts to lift and there's this substance on the ground and you scoop it up and then you can either boil it or bake it and it would turn into bread. It might be like a flour type consistency. I don't know. But that was what was sustaining them. But likewise, because the people said that they had meat and bread... Every morning, the manna would be on the ground. And in the evening, quail would come and land in their camp. This is something new that I learned doing the research. Uh, quail was a delicacy in Egypt. So for them enslaved all that time, they would have watched Egyptians or known that Egyptians were eating quail. And they may have been jealous of it because if they were enslaved, they probably hadn't tasted it. right? But there apparently was a migration pattern for quail and they would land in as they were flying they would kind of come between Sinai and Elam and they would you know they would land as like when they got tired so at the end of the night when they got tired from their migration they would land in the camp and the people would be able to take the quail and have meat so there are two complaints hey we had meat and we had bread in in Egypt God says here's bread and here's meat and I'm literally going to deliver it to you the abnormal part of the generosity God doesn't say you know what you're going to have to go hunt Go over here and you will find. If you do this, this, and this, you'll have food. God delivers it to them. Literally on the ground. Right? Miraculously, it shows up. Especially the manna. Right? It, that's not the kind of generosity that we're used to. It would have been plenty generous for God to say, hey, if you head three miles that way, there's a general store and they'll be able to hook you up. That would be generous. Like, but it's not the way that God did it. He goes above and beyond. And, and as I said... God is being generous to Aaron and Moses here too because those are the guys that are under fire. right? God doesn't say to Aaron and Moses, well, figure it out. You're in charge of these million people. You can figure something out. You're smart guys. No, he, he provides, kind of steps around Moses and Aaron and provides for the people to take the heat off of them. right? So God is being abundantly generous. Even when it comes to water. Right, we didn't read that part, but when it comes to water, God says, he doesn't say, you know, right over there there's going to be this lake with fresh water and you guys just got to fill up your to-go bags and, you know, get your, um, I'm trying to think of the name of the stupid backpacks with the, the, your Nalgenes. 
Camel packs, yeah. Just, just fill it up and then you'll be good to go. Just make sure. No. Moses is able to strike a stone and fresh water comes gushing out. Right? God is, is blessing these people with an abundant generosity that they may have never seen before. There's one other thing that he's generous in which kind of is interesting because they are given strict instructions about the manna. Take only what you need. You can have as much as you want as long as you use it all. So people are gathering up, and it was believed that sometimes, like, if Gordon had too much and I didn't have enough, we would talk, right? It kind of says in the Bible, it alludes to everyone had what they needed. People who needed more had more. People who needed less had less. But there probably was some exchange going on, like, oh, I took a little bit too much. Here's your, you know, you and your family of eight take some more, right? So there was a, my collar keeps popping up, and I'm not that cool, I promise. All right, so they were able to exchange and kind of have everybody have what they needed, but they were warned. Do not take more than you need. Right? This is a test to see if you're going to obey what I say. He even sets them up to make sure that they don't uh, abuse the Sabbath by saying, on the sixth day, take two days' work. That way, on the Sabbath, you don't have to work to scoop up the bread because we know that the laws of the Sabbath were very strict. So God sets them up for success, and he says, obey in this. Do not take more than you need. And then we learn at the end of that scripture that some people did take more than they needed. Right? They, they filled the jar with more than they could use. And the next morning, I think it was probably laziness. I don't want to go out again tomorrow morning. Why do I need to go out and scrape up another gallon's worth of this stuff? I'll just take two gallons today, two birds with one stone. And that is not what happens. In the morning when they opened up the jar, there were maggots in there, which are disgusting. And it smelled. So God punishes them. He says, that's it, you're cut off because you didn't listen. No, it very specifically says after that, the next morning, they had what they needed. Right? So yeah, God was generous. He gave them bread and he gave them quail. And once they broke the rules, they were cut off. No. Because God continues to be abnormally generous with his people. It's almost as if, I don't know, God says, I'll forgive you for your sins, but if you keep sinning, sorry, you're out. You can have manna every day, but if you take more than you need, you're cut off. That is not what God does. We'll get back to that in a little bit about like the, the, the beauty of God's continual forgiveness and how generous He is that He does not give up on us because we sinned again. Or He doesn't give up on them or tell them they're cut off because they took too much on Tuesday. They're not cut off from getting any on Wednesday. They woke up and the jar is spoiled, but there's more outside for them because God is generous. God doesn't owe his people anything. He's already freed the Israelites from captivity. He's already freed us from our sins. He's leading them to a new place to live. He could have had them hunt for food, like we said. They could have found fresh water in locations. He could have had them build boats to get across the Red Sea. Right? He could have said, hey, I will set you free, but your job is to build some rafts to get over the Red Sea. Instead, God says, let's walk on dry land. Right? And he swallows up Pharaoh after him. Like God continues to be generous with the Israelites. Remember when he fed the 5,000? This is the other story we're going to reference. You don't have to flip there. The story that I pulled was Matthew 14, 13 to 21. So we know the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000, but do we remember how that story begins? The goal, Jesus and the disciples get in a boat to go find some rest because they have been surrounded by people constantly. So their goal is to get away from everybody, take a nap, have some time to themselves. The problem is, as the boat is crossing over the water, people catch wind of where he's going to be. And some versions say that people are waiting for him when he gets there. 
So when they land on the other side, Jesus absolutely could have said, and not even been in the wrong to say, hey everybody, we're just trying to catch a snooze. We are exhausted. Can you guys come back in a little bit? That's not sinful, that's not rude, and that's not wrong. But the the scriptures say when he sees the crowds of people, he has compassion on them, and he heals their sick. The exact thing they were trying to get away from, crowds of people and healing people and doing all this work because they've been doing it exhaustively, the very thing that they're trying to get away from by taking the boat to the other side is what is waiting for them when they get there. And Jesus is so generous and so kind that he takes care of them. And then the disciples have a great idea. Hey, look at the time. It's getting to be a little bit late. Dusk is falling. We can't feed all these people. It's dinner time. This is a great way to disperse the crowd. Once again, it's not rude. It's not wrong. It's not sinful to say, hey, everybody, it's dinner time. We can't feed you. Why don't you head into the nearby villages, grab something to eat, reconvene in the morning. We'll, you know, let's take a recess. And Jesus goes, no, no, no. You feed them. The disciples have to think he's crazy. Their answer is, we only have this bread and these fish, five loaves and two fish. And then the miracle happens. God is abundantly generous with his people. And we know for a fact that it wasn't like Jesus gave everyone a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish, because at the end they pick up 12 basketfuls of leftovers. And five loaves of bread and two fish doesn't make 12 baskets. But you think about the generosity of Jesus toward the people as he sits them down in groups on the grass and he feeds them bread and fish until they're satisfied. But he also was pretty generous to the disciples because how many baskets were left over? Twelve. Twelve disciples walked around with a basket and they each had a basket full of food when they were done collecting it all. Right? We can't outrun God's generosity. We can't understand. Why would God do that? Why would God do things the way that he does? Why would my leaders pay for everything? Why would my leader drive into Riverside to pick me up every Sunday? Why would my leaders volunteer their time to come and work at youth group every week? Right, That type of stuff doesn't make sense. We can't wrap our heads around it. God doesn't owe us anything either. He created us and everything around us. He intended for an eternal, healthy relationship with his creation, and we spoiled it. And if he wanted to, he could leave us to our own devices. He could have done that a long time ago. He could do that tomorrow because he's sovereign and we're not. God could absolutely make the decision to separate himself from that which hurts him, which is sin. And unfortunately for us, that would mean separated from us. I I have a three-year-old, and I tell her all the time as she's dumping out a basket of toys, I don't care that you're dumping it out, but you have to clean it up because you've chosen to make this mess. You're making a conscious decision to make a mess. Instead of pulling one toy out, you're dumping the whole basket. She generally does a pretty good job picking up. But for some reason, God doesn't make make it our responsibility to clean up the mess that we make called sin. Right? It's, it's not fair. I tell people all the time, it is not fair that Jesus pays the price for our sin that we so deserve. Right? But that's the beauty of the gospel. That's how generous God is. We made the mess. We separated ourselves from God. And God steps in and cleans it up. Time after time. Right? It defies logic. That's not how we operate. Right? You made the mess. You need to clean it up. You made the mistake. You need to make it right. Yeah, of course, there's a degree of you know, asking for forgiveness, as Justin alluded to, that when we confess our sins, we are forgiven. That is a step, but come on. Having to pray for forgiveness pales mightily in comparison to Jesus coming to earth to die on the cross for our sins. Right? 
But the, the generosity of God shows up in such a way that we are forgiven for our sins because we have faith in what God has done for us. That's crazy. There's not 17 steps to find our way back to God. There's not, hey, you better not sin anymore. That would be a fair standard, would it not? If God says, all right, I'll forgive you for every sin you've committed. You are forgiven, but going forward, I can't keep doing it. God is more generous than that. Right? That doesn't make sense. If you were a, a, a business owner and your employee makes a mistake three times, you might forgive them three times, and then on the fourth time you're like, look, we cannot keep making the same mistake. You, you would be called, you know, you would be getting walked on if you let them keep doing it. But that's not how God operates. Despite the sin in our lives and despite the sin in the world around us, despite us barreling in the wrong direction at a thousand miles an hour like some of us might have been, God saved us. And that is the epitome of an abnormal generosity that we can't understand because we may not be able to to replicate that ourselves. So what do we do about it? Hopefully we find ways to be generous that are hard to understand. This is not a call for you to let people walk all over you. This is not a call to let people take advantage of you. But this is a call to, to treat people and behave towards people in such a way that they cannot deny that you are being overly generous toward them. Because what that does in turn is makes them ask God or ask us why we would ever do such a thing. I try to gently remind our kids that come to youth group now to remember to say thanks. And it's not about giving our leaders credit. It's not about look at all the stuff we do for you. But our leaders pick up kids every Wednesday for youth group and then take them home. A lot of times stop at Tim Hortons or McDonald's on the way and buy them a coffee or something to eat or bring food in for the kids to snack on. And I constantly try to tell the kids thanks because I want to make sure the leaders are being recognized for what they're doing. I talked to you earlier about the leader that crushed me with the dodgeball and how I thought it was awesome. And that kind of sparked a great friendship. Maybe five years ago, six years ago, there was a middle school kid that came running up to me with his friend. And he said, this is the guy. This is the guy pointing to me. And I'm nervous because when you're getting pointed to as this is the guy, it's usually not a good thing. He's like, this is the guy that flipped me over with the dodgeball. Well, like three weeks earlier, he was running and he jumped and I threw a dodgeball at him and it hit his feet. And he did like a 180 in the air and landed. And he goes and gets his middle school friend and brings them to youth group and can't wait to tell him that I'm the guy that flipped him over with the dodgeball. Now, that's not me being generous. That's me being a bully. But, hey, it was great. It was dodgeball. That's what we're supposed to do. And clearly it made a lasting positive effect on him. But what we can try to do now, what I can try to do now, is pay forward what the leaders did for me to people now. Because I know what happened. Two things happened because of the generosity that the leaders showed me. One, they showed me God's love and generosity in a tangible way. They never said, hey, you know what? God loves you and God is generous, so I'm going to love you and be generous and take you to the WWF match. They never said, hey, God loves me and God is generous with me and God loves you and he's generous with you, so why don't you come over to my house to watch Jurassic Park 3, which is a terrible movie, and we'll burn some popcorn and hang out. They never said, you know what? God is generous, so I'm going to come pick you up every Sunday and take you to breakfast afterward. But as an adult now, I can tell you that they were showing me God's love and generosity 
in a tangible way that a 13-year-old could understand. Even if it took me 10 years to understand that gas costs money and time is essential and you don't always have it. And they spent a ton of money on these pay-per-views and on tickets for things and on meals for me. Right? As an adult, I realize that now. But that's the first thing that he did. It's almost like Paul when he writes to the Corinthians. And he says, imitate me because I'm imitating Jesus. He's not bragging about himself. He's saying, look, I'm trying my best to live my life as a good Christian. So if you look at the way I'm doing things, you might succeed as well. The leaders, without saying that, showed me what to emulate now that I'm a leader, now that I'm in ministry, now that I'm an adult, now that I have kids in my life, and how to treat the people around me. The second thing that it did is it made me run toward Jesus. I didn't realize it at the time. Like It's kind of like the, the transitive theory. My leaders were walking through life with Jesus, and then they invite me to walk with them. And without knowing it, I am now walking next to Jesus because they are. It wasn't a formal invitation in writing, hey, why don't you follow Jesus with me? It's not what it was. But by effect, because they were generous, because they were kind, I was introduced to walking with Jesus. And now I get to do the same thing for kids in the same way, to show them God's love, to treat them with generosity and kindness and give good gifts and and hang out with them and give them my time and my energy and give them a ride because I know for a fact that I'm walking with Jesus. Not perfectly, but if I can get kids to walk alongside me, then by nature they're walking with Jesus. So the generosity of my leaders showed me God's love, showed me his generosity, and introduced me to what it looked like to walk with Jesus Christ. It's not always easy to be generous especially when we feel unappreciated or when we feel like the people we're being generous to don't deserve it. Sometimes we feel like we should only be generous to people who can reciprocate, right? What have you done for me lately? And I ask you this. Remember the generosity that God has shown us. Remember the generosity that God showed his people throughout biblical history. They didn't deserve it. We certainly can't reciprocate with this much of what God has done for us. We don't always appreciate it. But God has been generous and kind and loved us. Although we don't deserve it, although we didn't even ask for it, God loves us and is generous. So how can we do that for the people around us to be generous, to love them, to be kind to them, to show them Jesus? That's the tough question. That's what we try to live out. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the examples that we were able to reference today. You you serving the Israelites in the desert with bread and quail. You serving 5,000 people bread and fish as they sat down before you hungry and hurting. And despite being tired, despite looking for a rest, despite needing a break, you were kind and generous and loving towards those people. And then for us, although we don't deserve it, although we don't reciprocate, although we might not even realize or appreciate what you have done for us and what you're doing for us, you do not stop showering us with good gifts. You give us breath in the morning. You give us life every day. You give us people who love us. You love us. You offer forgiveness. You offer salvation. The gospel has not been pulled away from us because of our sin. You don't look at the world and the sin that is in it and say, it doesn't deserve the gospel. I'm taking it away. You look at the world and you say, you know what? Even though it doesn't deserve it, I'm going to keep injecting the gospel into the world. And for that, we are grateful. So Jesus, we do our best to love you. We do our best to know you. We do our best to follow you. And hopefully we do our best to those around us to show them love and kindness and generosity with the goal of introducing them to you. 
we thank you for being abnormally generous with us. I thank you for the people in my life as I was growing up, and even people in my life now who are more generous to me than I could ever expect or understand. God, we love you. We long to praise you, and we long for a stronger relationship with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thanks, Steve, for sharing with us those words from the Bible and, and that message. Just so appropriate, and I, I was just reminded as he's saying that, thinking, oh, well, you know, that's, that's Psalm 23 right there. The Lord pours and overflows our cup. It just doesn't just fill it to the brim, but overflows. It makes a mess all over the table, but we can't, we can't complain about that. And the great thing about being generous in the name of Christ is that the more you give, the more is given back to you. That's Luke 6 right there. The more you give, the more is given back to you. Not just like God being miserly with it. But he says a good measure, pressed down, actually overflowing. So be generous this week. Look for an opportunity to be generous with what God has given you. Not, not being tight-fisted with it, but going, whatever you have, look for opportunities to give. And God will give you back in return. In a different way. But living a life in Jesus is never a life where you're empty and you're feeling in want. It's always a life where you are full. Let's pray now and receive the benediction. Now, Lord, may you bless us and keep us. May you turn our face toward us and give us peace this week. In your name, amen. Go with God.